This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and your host here on Ringler Radio. Certainly glad you could join us. Our topic today, the ongoing battle against tobacco. And here to discuss it is a legend in that battle, a man who went from tobacco industry insider to tobacco industry whistleblower. Dr. Jeffrey Wigand was the highest-ranking tobacco executive to come forward with the truth about the harms caused by tobacco use and its intentional targeting of children. In 1993, he tried to get his employer, Brown & Williamson, to remove ammonia-based additives from cigarettes. They not only refused, he was fired. Later, his public testimony before Congress ultimately led to a landmark settlement against big tobacco and changed forever the way companies operate and advertise. His story was also the basis for The Insider, with Russell Crowe playing Jeffrey on the big screen. Today, he's the founder of Smoke-Free Kids, trying to help young people make better decisions about tobacco use. So, Jeff, welcome to Ring the Radio. Thank you. You know, before we get Pleasure into... being back again. I'm glad you're here. And before we get into the important stuff, I have to ask you this. What did, what did it feel like to sit there in that movie theater, look up at that screen, and see Russell Crowe playing you in the movie? Other than the fact that he wasn't as handsome or charismatic, how did it make you feel? Well, with that kind of with that kind of introduction, I mean, I can't, what do you want me to say? Um, it must be a little out of body experience. It's a little out of body. I have to say, it was surreal. The first time I saw it was what they call the first cut, which was in June of '99. And I, I have to say, my my daughters and myself, as watching it, had had difficulty watching it because it was so close to a docudrama than I, what I expected out of Hollywood. <laughs> well, you know, we all loved it, and uh, it was great to see uh, him up for that Academy Award, too. It was, uh, it was cool. I wish they would have won one, but he won it next year for, a, I guess it was for Gladiator. Yeah, exactly. I think he, did, it, he did a great job. They all know, did a great job. You know, had it been reversed, had he won Gladiator first, I think he would have won for you next. Well, a lot, of, a lot has happened in the uh, world of tobacco litigation, uh, Jeff. Uh, a new groundbreaking law just passed by Congress recently. Uh, Finally. Yeah, finally. Gives the FDA the authority to regulate tobacco products. Tell us about that and and how that new legislation will help protect the public, especially children. I think it has to go back to the B&W versus the FDA and the Supreme Court decision in 2000, which was a 5-4 decision which basically said the FDA did not have jurisdiction over such a dangerous and killing and addictive product that it needed to change CFR 21 to embrace tobacco, which was at that time fully unregulated. Mm-hmm. Finally, last year, President Obama signed into law what's called the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. And while it has many, many, many positive elements to it, such as it's tobacco marketing to kids. We know there are 3,000 children a day become new addicts. 
Mm-hmm. It bans the candy-like and the fruit-flavored type cigarettes. Uh, it requires that the tobacco companies take their packaging and change and, and put graphic representations on 52% of the label. Uh, it takes out what I believe is probably the most onerous and misleading, and which has led to a lot of the RICO issues, is this whole light, mild, and ultra-light, believing that they are conveying a message of safety. Uh, gives the FDA the opportunity to review and understand exactly what goes in the product. It gives disclosure. What it does not cover, and which have been issues that I have, are really it, it provides an exemption from one of the, the largest used additives called menthol. And menthol is an additive that actually has an anesthetic effect and it's particularly marketed to African-American and Hispanic communities. I think that's an error. Well, you know, let's talk about some of these specifics here. The, sure. The concept of light and low tar, I think the most of the public that over the years was choosing and selecting those brands thought that they were safer in some way. And uh, obviously, the, the new ruling implies that, that they're, not as, they're not as safe or they're not any safer. Uh, what, what's the story with that? Well, what basically the industry has done is that as people become more health conscious and light and mild and low tar suggested to the user by inference that this is a healthier choice when full well the industry knew all it did was defeat the co-opted FTC method, the Federal Trade Commission for Measuring Tar and Nicotine, by them modifying the manner in which the cigarette is smoked on a machine. Mm-hmm. not the way it's smoked by a human being. And when you start blocking the the tiny little invisible holes to the naked eye, you see that it, they dil- basically dilute out the tar and nicotine, but when you smoke it, you essentially block those holes that the machine doesn't block and allows the smoker to get exposure to higher levels of tar, higher levels of nicotine, and any one of the 4,000 to 8,000 toxic components that come with it. Mm. So people migrated from, from, from full flavor to light thinking they were getting a healthier choice. They weren't getting a healthier choice. And then they turned up, wind up doing two things. They wound up smoking more, and the industry developed the capacity for the cigarette to be elastic, to feed out, to be able to, for the cigarette to deliver the nicotine burden that the consumer needed through a process called compensation. So light and mild monikers are are definitely what I would call fraudulent monikers and cause many people uh, to migrate to them and get the same corresponding illnesses that they got from smoking full-flavored cigarettes. Yeah, I heard that uh, people who smoke those cigarettes need to almost inhale deeper because of the the lack of the flavorings, et cetera, that uh, they would typically expect. That is called compensation. Okay, well, there you go. Well, the, the law, doesn't it give the FDA the power to order, order the removal, the power to, to remove certain harmful ingredients? Is, is, for example, menthol one of those ingredients that you would expect them to move on to try to, uh, you know, remove, or, or is, is that not quite as harmful? Well, as you know, Philip Morris was part of the, was, is at the, was at the bargaining table or at the construction of the law table, which was some, another problem I had, but menthol is an anesthetic when used. I know I, when I took gross anatomy, I used to use Vicks VapoRub under my nose so that I could be able to not be nauseous. But also menthol has a numbing effect. 
And if you have a numbing effect and you're the normal biological, ph- physiological, me- mechanics or mechanistic ways of us reacting to breathing in smoke is to shut down the airwaves. Well, menthol disengages that process and allows you to smoke. And predominantly, these are cigarettes with, that are mentholated, a, a, are predominantly targeted or marketed to African-Americans and Hispanics. And the light menthols are what we would call gateway. If you can numb the poisons that come in, like the acetone and the formaldehyde and, and the other harmful ingredients that are highly irritating, and you can numb that, then that allows somebody to become addicted. And that's all that process does. Well, when, when you were back at B&W, you were more in the science end of things, not the marketing, I assume. No, I was not in the market. I was, I was their chief scientific and medical officer. Right. So, so where do you sense that they would want to market the menthol-type brand to the African-American community? Where would that come from? How would that even get decided? Do you wear that? How did, it, how did it start out? I think it started out that, that cool cigarettes were highly flavored with menthol. It's something that the African-American community started to smoke more than the non-menthol. Brown and Williamson was at that time what we would call the market leader in menthol cigarettes. It is not that leader anymore. Uh, and over time, it became a product that had high irritation. And the way it was compensated for was by using higher and higher levels of menthol, which essentially gave that that effect that I mentioned before, that anesthetic yeah. effect. It's just interesting to see how the whole marketing will will be changing now. The marketing, not only the marketing, but the advertising based upon the new law and based upon all the work that you did along the way. So let's talk about the effect now of how the new law will uh, deal with and affect litigation coming forward. Now, we know that one hotbed for litigation is the state of Florida. Uh, and smokers, I know smokers and their families are suing tobacco companies individually because I think the $145 billion class action tobacco damage award was voided down there by the state Supreme Court. That is correct. Tell, they, tell, talk about that, the, not only the overturning of the, uh, of the class action award, but these individual lawsuits. How are these people faring in that, in that litigation these days? Well, actually, they're faring pretty well, believe it or not. Um, I mean, they, they, they have been since, and I guess we'll call this the angle um, – family of suits. Um, the, the Florida Supreme Court basically dismissed the issue of mass tort or class action and really forced the issue into individual cases. But in their rulings, uh, and particularly in their statements of uh, in their res judicata, basically set the stage for individual lawsuits that basically revolves around tort law that's very unique in Florida as well as the case that's in Ohio, which really says that in, in Florida's RICO statute, one does not need to, re, the plaintiff does not have to show injury to its, himself or property or business, but requires that the plaintiff was either directly or indirectly injured by the defendant's RICO violation. And that's really why the Florida Medicaid case or the massive settlement agreement was able to go forward. The cases in Florida have been doing better than what I would say expected. 
the the verdicts have been good, I believe. One one was for I think approximately eight million, the next was for thirty million, and the one that got the tobacco industry's attention was the last one, which is actually under appeal right now, and that was the Noggle case, which was three hundred million dollars, fifty six million dollars in compensatory damages and $244 million in what they call punitive damages to Cindy Noggle. Well, at the same time that these cases were doing, let's, let's call it doing well, uh, others weren't, weren't they? I mean, I heard about a Florida smoker who settled with Philip Morris for $1,000. Yeah, why, why such a low amount? Why did he settle for $1,000? Well, there are two. Uh, well, I haven't read the brief, and here's my, what I have been able to glean from it. I think it was Jerome Cohen accepted it. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale, and it was, it was, I guess it's intimidation. The intimidation factor here is that this person now, should he lose the tort case or the negligence case, and I'm not quite sure how Florida is pursuing under each individual case, whether it's strict liability or it's under negligence, that he would be responsible if he lost for all the court costs of the defendants. And you know that tobacco lawyers do very well. Uh, I know every time I go to a deposition or go to court, I attract uh, in an order of a dozen to maybe even two dozen tobacco lawyers at about 800 to $900 an hour. And the court period, the time from beginning of the litigation to the end, and assuming they don't bifurcate it, is generally in the order of months. And I believe what what he basically did is said, oh, I'll take the $1,000. I don't want to roll the dice. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be exposed to the hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal expense and that, that process. That's what I think. Yeah, well, it's not, it sound, that sounds right. And, and obviously this risk of uh, having to pay the legal fees of the other side, I guess will uh, dissuade some of the more... Uh, I'll call them frivolous types coming in to try to take advantage of this litigation, whereas the more serious ones are going to get their day in court and move on. Is that basically? That is correct. I think, I mean, I think the day in court is coming. I mean, I, I have trouble interpreting, to be honest with you, the appeal process that went on in Atlanta on the 27th. I mean, they, they, they're basically saying they've been deprived of their federal due process rights. I don't quite understand whether that is either procedural or or substantive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't understand how the Supreme Court of Florida usurped their 14th Amendment rights. Well, it, we'll let those high-priced lawyers figure that out, I guess, well, huh? That, that, that will make most sense. And it, it really revolves around the whole principle of whether you have a, you know, offensive collateral estoppel or you have defensive uh, well, I have to tell you, Jeff, uh, you started out as a scientist in the tobacco industry. It sounds to me like you're morphing into a you know appeals lawyer at this time, doesn't it? You're really no, learning. I, you're learning a lot about the, the subject. You're learning a lot about the litigation. And I uh, have to. Yeah, I mean it's it's part of what I do. Yeah, very interesting. Let's move on to uh, another very controversial area, and that's smokeless tobacco. Uh, you know, oh, boy, you, can, yeah. you can understand with the tobacco companies getting hammered on the. Uh, the smoking uh, type of tobacco, the smokeless type of tobacco is now coming to the fore. And uh, what are your concerns? What are your concerns about the smokeless uh, products? 
Well, first of all, it's being marketed in very attractive packages. I think I sent Kate a a PowerPoint slide that I did for the state of Indiana, which they basically have very elegant packaging. You have it in the form of strips like the Listerine breath mints that contains nicotine. You have it in sticks. You now can get it in patches, generally used for cessation, or you can get it in in tic-tac format which are called orbs, and they are essentially nicotine delivery systems that I think have two effects. One is it negates the capacity for people to quit, and two is it allows people to continue to using nicotine, which which the evidence has continued to be built that nicotine by itself may in its its own right, without the other 4,000 to 8,000 chemicals that are there, be harmful. And distinctly home. Well, you're talking about little nuanced products. I mean, most people think of smokeless as that pinch between the cheek and the gum and, you know, that... that yeah, then they, ha- they have the, they have what's called the snuff, the moist snuff, and they come yes. in little tea bags. Yes. And graduated pHs, or, or what they call acid-based pHs, so that they deliver nicotine in different doses. But they also have a whole class in now, what they call candy-like mm-hmm. orbs. And it comes in a, nice, a very little handy, colorful uh, dispenser, which dispenses a little tablet that contains a tenth of a milligram of nicotine. Well, you know the tobacco companies are promoting these smokeless products as less harmful alternatives to cigarettes. And what's your feeling about that? Well, I'd like to see the evidence. Mm -hmm. Just show me how they're less harmful. You, You think they're addictive. Obviously, you're saying addictive ingredients are being used in these smokeless products as well. Well, we, we, the Centers for Disease Control evaluated one of a random sample of orbs. And lo, lo and behold, we found a very harmful chemical in it uh, called coumarin. And I think that may ring some bells with folks because that was a very chemical compound that I had a problem with Brown and Williamson using in their Sir Walter Raleigh aromatic pipe tobacco when it was shown to be a, a carcinogen by the National Toxicology Program. My problem is, is I was in a sixth grade class in, outside of Indianapolis working with kids, and what do I find? I find a young lady with a package of vanilla-flavored orbs. Now, these are products supposed to be meant for adults. And, what I, and here we now we find a young, a young child, so I think she may be 12, 13 years old, sixth grader, having a nicotine delivery system. My problem with it is is that it, it when you look at the products and you look at the advertising, it's a, they're products that are geared again to maintaining addiction, not cessation, and to maintain and they're what we call gateway. How do you get into it? How do you get addicted? And then what's the next what do you escalate to? And that is most certainly just like Well, what's, what's being done to stop the use of these addictive ingredients in these products? You know, you look at the, what the FDA is doing on the, on the smoking side of things. What are they looking at on the smokeless side? Not much yet. Not much yet. Is and, that, I, is, and why is that? Because of the, their, I mean, I think their marching pretty, orders or, or is it they're not? No, I think it's just a matter of how, how fast can they get ramped up. I mean, when you want to look at the largest, you know, you got 45 million people who are smokers. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are new products. Uh, 
they probably need to have disclosure. Uh, they are testing these new products in, in Indiana, Ohio, and Oregon without giving disclosure to the users, which they probably, I would like to have some form of formed consent if I was going to have a clinical trial done on me. I mean, that's their market testing a product that has unknown constituent. What it, What is in the product? We now know there's nicotine in it. We know there's uh, menthol in it. We know there is spearmint in it. We know there's cinnamon in it. Uh, we also know there's coumarin in it. And this is not done by my laboratory. It's, this is done by the Centers for Disease Control, a U.S. government laboratory that does this as a specialty. Well, you know, when just so our audience understands, if, if a 16 or 15-year-old child walks into a convenience store and wants to buy cigarettes, there's big signs all over the store. You have to be 18 or you have to have a certain age and no show IDs. Uh, what is it when they go in and try to buy these smokeless products? Do they have the same prohibitions? Uh, do I, they apply? I believe they should or do. Now, you have to realize that 60% of cigarettes acquired by children never get checked. They buy them themselves, sixty percent. Yeah. And, and well, that's partly a product of uh, one of these stores trying to make their sales, and they're not—they're kind of winking and looking the other way. It sounds that like that is correct, and that's why you have all these little sting operations going on in various states, but which actually try to catch the retailer selling to somebody who's underage. And you get it—you get a young man or a young lady that looks in their twenties that should be should be ID'd. It's not being ID'd, and they actually buy a product when they're 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Well, you obviously believe that these smokeless tobacco products and these the makers of them are putting ingredients in to try to target the children to try to get them, as you said, into that entry level. What also you're very uh, involved in is an organization called Smoke Free Kids to keep children away from tobacco products. So you're obviously the, the whole element of children being involved in these products is important to you. What is Smoke-Free Kids, that organization? What's the biggest battle? What are you, what are you really waging right now? Well, I, I would say if anything I wage first and foremost on a, on, a, on a rank priority basis would be to prevent our young children in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade from ever having their first experience with tobacco. We know from the studies done in Boston that once they, once they pick up the first cigarette or tobacco product, it just takes them right down the pathway to becoming addicts. I want to be able to, A, first and foremost, prevent the influx of 3,000 new tobacco users a day, children. Second is I want the laws, and we have some nice laws. I want to see smoke-free environments. We do a lot with that because we want to protect the innocents. Uh, and also, I think litigation is an important element of it because it constantly keeps the, the public, the media, the legal uh, entities involved in understanding how egregious and what the industry is doing. Because that continues to highlight that we need more and more laws and an enforcement of the laws. It's like it's something like the Gordian Knot. Yeah, no question about it. Well, you obviously have a lot on your plate. The agenda is large. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that after we take a short break. So let's go to a break now. And while we're on break, Jeff, maybe you can check and see if that dog in the background is on menthol or regular cigarettes. They're going to be on a boot. Go check them. (laughs) This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. 
Since 1975, Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio. From Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years, and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host. My guest today, tobacco industry whistleblower and founder of Smoke Free Kids Incorporated, Dr. Jeffrey Wigand. Jeff, it's been uh, very fascinating to uh, to listen to what you have to say about this subject. I know you're passionate about it. Smoke Free Kids is a tremendous organization. Are we seeing a decline in tobacco use by children? I would say it's steady state, if not increasing in some areas. Let me give you an example. Florida was one of the first states to settle out. It was actually the second state. They took all the settlement money, the billions of dollars that came into the state for Medicaid reimbursement, and they basically changed what Lawton Childs had put in effect in terms of the truth campaign. Once that was had been up and running, there was a 52% reduction in middle school and high school kids' smoking patterns. Once that money was taken away... The program went back to where it was before it started. Well, let's talk about let's talk about that money. People like to throw money at a lot of problems, and sometimes money doesn't quite solve it. What were they doing with the funds that you think was appropriate and and, and helpful here? And and what's the best way to keep children from using tobacco? What what would you advocate? I mean, I think first and foremost, I'm a, I'm an educator. I I think I believe that you educate children to make critical decisions go through critical analysis to get to those decisions, and hopefully at the end they will make the right decision. I cannot make that decision for them. I share with them not so much the the ugly consequences of tobacco use, but how the industry particularly talks about them and how they target them, whether it would be with Joe Camel or telling a young lady when she's 12, 13 years old, you smoke a cigarette, you'll get thin, mm-hmm. and though, how those are manipulative and engage them in seeing the industry's own documents. So that costs money to do. Mm-hmm. It costs money for the state to do it. It has We integrated it into, into fifth-grade uh, classes in, in Florida. Uh, when I go out and talk to kids around the world, my basic approach has been share with them the truth. I mean, don't intimidate them with negative cognitive information engage them and enable them with positive cognitive information. Let them see what the industry has written for the last five decades that we've been able to produce and let them see how they deliberately and consciously target children, not adults, not switching brands. Well, you know, you know something, Jeff, in addition to uh, what you're talking about targeting, 
you know, kids are also very prone to what I call the peer pressure syndrome. You're correct. And, and not just the peer pressure of their, their, their fellow students uh, who the, maybe the cool kids are smoking and they're going to, you know, gravitate to that, but also the whole concept of role modeling, right? Uh, you correct. see, you see baseball players with the chaw in their mouth. You, you see, got it. and you see, uh, movies, uh, you know, a lot of movies are being made where you see a lot of what I would call extraneous smoking somewhere in the script and, and, and people are there. What are you doing about those kinds of things that I think have an effect? And when you see these big movie stars, you know, smoking in the movie on screen, I, I guess the screenwriter could have could have taken it out, but they left it in. What, what are you doing I mean, about I have that? A, I, have a, I, have a, I have a problem with gratuitous smoking in the movies. Uh, I, I think that kids like to look look up to movie stars and and like to become sort of monkey see, monkey do. I mean, some of the, the, the most effective process we have with kids is price increase. Yeah. By the price. Hits them in the pocketbook. It, it, it's a pocketbook. The, sec, the second thing is, how do, you, how, how do you deal with the advertising promotion? Well, the, the new law, the new FDA law, by Congress, will deal with the advertising and promotion issue. Second is that, the third is, is that, is how do you deal with peer pressure? I mean, I have seen young kids actually want to be part of a peer group that are severe asthmatics and part of the peer group is smoking. And every time they go into that peer group, they feel they have to smoke, irrespective of the disease they have that could actually put them in the hospital. So we need to, have them, we need to teach them how to be peer. We also have to teach our young girls that they'd all, they all don't have to be thin as a, ra- a rail to be human beings. Well, that's all body image and a subject for probably another whole show uh, as to what affects yeah. kids and, and I mean, their, their you look behavior. At some of the, look at some of the thin cigarettes. Yeah. And, and how they model them in the advertising and how they portray thinness. So, I mean, kids need to understand that amongst the other things they're trying to learn as they go through school. How do they get healthier processes? And, and not only do we de- I deal with smoking, but I deal with all substances of abuse. Alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, marijuana, uh, uh, cocaine, heroin, etc. I think the process of of critical thinking and the peer pressure is is things that they have to learn how to deal with. Now, not not all of them are they successful, but when you talk to high school students who have been smoking for years, they all want to quit. They all want to find a way to quit. And so, when you desocialize smoking, like smoke-free environments. Mm-hmm. You raise the price, you take the advertising away, you educate them, and you provide meaningful, effective cessation programs. Guess what? They work. And we haven't been doing enough of that because what we've done is we've cannibalized the massive settlement agreement to $246 billion given out to each state, or all the states, and we use it for everything but denormalization of tobacco as defined in 1999 by best practices for the Centers for Disease Control. That is, by just spending 20% of that money, we could save some of the 440,000 lives that are lost each year that are preventable lost lives directly attributable to tobacco, plus another $200 billion in lost health care costs and productivity costs in the workforce. Well, I'll tell you what's important. It's important that, that advocates like yourself continue to push that that agenda. You're going to have to continue to do that because, as you say, there are 
all, all kinds of uses for funds out there today, as you know, in this economy. And to, to have – the best economy. Yeah. Well, to have states allocate funds for the kinds of good work you're talking about, it's going to take a lot of uh, strong voices, and you're certainly one of them. So how can people become more uh, involved in smoke-free kids? How would they contact the organization if they want to contribute or they want to really get to know a lot more about it? Well, first of all, there's a website, and it's www.smokefreekids.org. It's not case sensitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's and, good. And so you and you can type it in. And actually, there are scientific uh, elements to it. There are how to quit. There are uh, questions that are geared more to learning. Mm-hmm. That is, you can actually, what do you know about tobacco? And there's a whole set of questions. And then at the end of it, you find out what your score is. Uh, how do how do you how does compensation elasticity, what we spoke about a while ago, how does that work? And there's a whole section on the the Federal Trade Commission method and why that needs to be changed and how there these very hidden ventilation holes that are put in a filter to a cigarette cannot be seen by the naked eye, but we've been able to do that on a microscope. Uh, how to quit. Yep. What, what are the mechanisms to quit? What are the processes that one goes through? What's the pre-contemplative stage? What's the contemplative stage? What do you need to do and how to do it? Some people can do cold turkey. Some people need most certainly pharmacological intervention, both through what we call nicotine replacement therapy and many times a antidepressant. There's a brand new drug out called Chantix that basically allows people to titrate themselves or wean themselves off the nicotine to such a point that they are tobacco-free. And that's what we want. We want more, less in and more quit. Well, you also want people to be informed. And to get informed, I would encourage the audience to uh, get to that website, Smoke Free Kids, and learn more about this process. Uh, Jeffrey, you've been doing great work for a long time now, and uh, we certainly appreciate what you do every day. Uh, we want to thank you again for joining us and to keep this subject matter right at the uh, on, on, on the top burner of we, everybody's we, we, stove. We just did that. We, we just put a little bit a little, a little bit, a little bit more on top of the pile. And that's exactly what right. we should do. And we'll have you back another time as we continue to see some of the changes in both legislation and uh, and the litigation side. I mean, the litigation in Florida is going to become more and more interesting. And well, we'll we'll certainly have you back when that when that gets decided, and uh, and we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Larry. You have a good day, and enjoy your snow and cold. <laughs> I appreciate that. If everyone wants to listen to all of our shows, remember Ringler Radio can be heard ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. Just go to those websites; you'll hear all the shows. And you can even uh, download them to your iPod every day. So thanks for listening. Jeffrey Wygan, thank you again for joining us. And now go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.